The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hamilgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Mr. Bill Stowe. He is the CEO and general manager of the Des Moines Waterworks. Prior to that, Mr. Stowe was the Human Resources Director for the City of Des Moines, Operations Manager for Mid-American Energy, as well as an analyst for Shell Oil, Labor Relations Representative for Inland Steel Industries, and a field examiner for the National Labor Relations Board. Quite an interesting history. Mr. Stowe holds a bachelor's degree in economics from Grinnell College, a master of science in engineering from the University of Wisconsin, and a master of science in industrial relations from the University of Illinois, as well as a Juris Doctorate degree from Loyola University Law School. Mr. Stowe sits on the board of directors of the Association of Metropolitan Water Agencies, which comprises the largest drinking water utilities in North America. He is a member of the American Society of Civil Engineers and a member of the Iowa State Bar Association. Welcome, Mr. Stowe. I wanted to thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, I know how important water is. As a dietitian, water is our most important nutrient. And as we've heard recently in the media, water is life. And I've been so impressed with your persistence and your diligence in protecting Iowa's water. And people who listen to this program are all over the United States. Even in Canada, we have listeners. And I want to help people understand that Iowa, even though it is part of what we call the flyover zone, Iowa and its agricultural production is connected to all of us through corn and soy and hogs and eggs and ethanol. So you are very much central, not only in the United States, but to what all of us put in our mouths. Thank you, Melinda. There's no question that what we do in Iowa is certainly connected with people in Manitoba or Maryland or wherever it may be. We are part of the industrial magnet, if you will, of agricultural production and the environmental issues associated with that, the nutritional and the public health issues associated with that, I think unite all of us, whether in Canada or the Midwest or the South. Yeah, we really are all connected through this environmental systems network. I want to know, though, a little bit about your history and how is it that you became interested in water quality? I've come to this job where, obviously, water quality, uh, providing safe, affordable, abundant drinking water is our mission from a background in flood protection, which is really a water quantity issue. I was assistant city manager of public works and of engineering for the city of Des Moines, which is at a confluence of a couple of pretty good-sized rivers, the Raccoon and Des Moines River. Ultimately, uh, the Des Moines River ends the Mississippi River, so we're all part of the Mississippi River Basin. I came to this job from really a water management standpoint in flood control. I came into it thinking that really it was probably primarily also a water management issue from a quantity standpoint here, like so many areas of the Midwest and the West, we're prone to drought and floods both. 
but the quantity issues really weren't the immediate point of interest for me and certainly are not the point of interest for our customers. It's really water quality. We have ample amounts of water generally. It's just the water quality that we receive as a surface water provider that is from our local rivers and streams as part of the Mississippi Basin. It's just horrible. So it isn't that we can't get the water. It's the water that we get are so polluted by industrial agriculture that it is extraordinarily difficult to meet public health standards. You know, we are told that we need this industrial agricultural system, however, because we have to, quote unquote, feed the world. And this is the only way we're going to do it. How do you respond to that rhetoric? Well, the whole feed the world meme is an interesting one because as an Iowan, 90% of the food that I'm getting is imported into Iowa. We feed gas tanks through ethanol and we feed hogs through our corn and soy that are exported to China. And even all those trade relationships are very much in flux right now with some of the international crises we're facing in the trade world. The idea that we're feeding the world simply is inaccurate. And even if we were to take for the sake of argument, that premise that we're feeding the world is being the case, which is not accurate. We're doing it at the expense of our local environment. That's a huge concern as as a fifth-generation Iowan and somebody who's been around industrial ag for all of my life. I'm concerned that this area of the Midwest and the Mississippi River Valley generally is beginning to look more like West Virginia. We're kind of the remnant of a failed industrial model. In the West Virginia case, obviously, big coal, it's big ag here that has left us with rural communities that are far smaller in environment, both in terms of our soil, our water, and our air that's compromised by systems of industrial production that, frankly, are are failing the locals and ultimately failing our environment. Yes. And when we bring these issues up, I know from my own experience, I'm often told, you know, these are difficult discussions. People tend to be nice in the Midwest. They don't want to bring up issues that might be offensive to some and not others. I've been told that these issues are, quote unquote, political. They are political. But I think that Thomas Jefferson would want us to be having a discussion about them. Well, in any discussion about agriculture, not only are we talking about the politics of civility, if you will, and incivility sometimes, but we're also talking about a system that's heavily subsidized by public dollars. So to pretend that we don't have the right or the obligation as taxpayers to raise serious concerns about industrial ag is to minimize all the amounts of federal and state dollars that we as taxpayers are shoveling back into industrial agriculture now. This isn't a free market system, and agriculture is a a system that's heavily reliant on public dollars. As consumers, as taxpayers, I think we have both a right and an obligation to future generations to engage ourselves in these discussions, even though certainly there are those who would want to deflect that as being political or being unnecessary, being un-Midwestern or are not appropriately courteously rural. These are serious issues that I think are beginning to manifest themselves in public health issues and in a gutting of rural communities as we're seeing 
concentrated animal feeding operations and uh, row crop monocrops continue to consolidate and and push small towns and the sociology of a rural America off the map. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with you. I drive through much of rural America just because I prefer to get off the interstate. And I see many areas that are so downtrodden, almost like ghost towns anymore. And you made a comparison between, you brought up West Virginia earlier, and you made the comparison of Iowa and West Virginia as being sacrificial states. I guess they're exploitable because perhaps the communities don't have the wherewithal to fight back when these big industries take control of the legislature. I don't know. How do you make sense of this? Well, certainly there's something very alluring at some point about beautiful fields and harvests and cornucopia of production. But uh, I think we have a tendency to ignore the underbelly of all of that, which means the consolidation of farming operations. Really, the family farm is something that looks good in a Norman Rockwell plate or a Grant Wood painting. But nonetheless, it's something that is long since behind us, at least in my area of the Midwest, where we are number one in corn, we're number one in hogs, we're number one in soybeans, we're number one in egg production and in ethanol production. All of that's about economies of scale and consolidation in a way that has pushed out marginal farming operations and even ancillary kind of businesses, packing houses and local meat lockers, as an example, now are so heavily tied with international corporations that union jobs, uh, once good paying jobs associated with those kinds of vocations are gone now. And, you know, we're seeing our rural communities continue to get squeezed on the altar of more production, which starts a treadmill, obviously, of lower prices and greater consolidation to push back on the profit and cost concerns associated with lower margins and higher debt. So we seem to be on a treadmill that's taking us down a path not only of economic problem like West Virginia, as an example, and they're being left in the remnants of big coal, but also we're setting an example and and industrial agricultural production is being used as American models are being used in Canada and Europe and Africa and the developing countries as kind of the standard. And, and it's, I think, very unfortunate from a sociological standpoint and certainly from an environmental standpoint, because generally what we see is that Producers have little or no accountability for the environmental impacts of their production, so their profits are being maximized by detaching costs, if you will, from production and pushing it down on consumers in other ways. Water consumers is an example. My half a million customers are having to pay to clean up water that's being polluted by corn and soy and hog producers upriver that are essentially uh, sidestepping a cost of production and pushing it to downstream consumers. Exactly. Now, have you ever been sued or has the state of Iowa ever been sued by downstream communities? I'm thinking specifically of those fisher communities in the Gulf that have lost access to their livelihoods due to this dead zone caused by these agricultural nutrients going into that body of water. The legal system, and speaking as a lawyer myself, I can tell you that the legal system has not been, in my view, responsive to 
stakeholders, to consumers, to citizens who've been adversely impacted by industrial models. So the long and short of it is we as a water utility have in fact sued or tried to sue upstream producers for the costs they've pushed on our consumers. We were unsuccessful in that regard. And I think both state and federal governments have been very resistant to the idea that downstream consumers, fishers, environmentalists should be able to hold accountable upstream producers or polluters, if you will. That is certainly the case right now where the EPA is, in fact, instead of creating greater regulatory protections for those of us who are downstream, are in fact now making it easier for pesticide producers, as an example, to get past what were normal environmental reviews to create greater risks to those of us who are water users and consumers. Absolutely. There was an article about your work really as a warrior for the environment and for water. And I didn't realize that agriculture is exempt from the Clean Water Act. Yeah, the exemption isn't quite as general as saying all ag. What it basically says is there are irrigation systems that are exempt And from our view, in our area of the Mississippi River Valley, where there are essentially stormwater systems, rainwater collection systems under the fields in our part of the upper Midwest, that they're a lot like any point source polluter. And we believe that the Clean Water Act environmental regulations should apply to that. Now, we have been dismissed out of our lawsuit, largely because we're a public entity and suing another public entity, in this case, drainage districts, our governmental storm sewer systems upstream was viewed as not allowed under the Iowa Constitution. But in the long and short of it, you know, agriculture has generally been viewed by the courts and I think by regulators as being a non-point source polluter, meaning that they were exempt, which was kind of your theme. And the question, I think there are a number of us that disagree with that, but nonetheless, uh, certainly the center of gravity is, as you've suggested, viewing agriculture as being exempt from a number of regulations. We think that's unfortunate because obviously it should be pretty clear to most of your listeners that surface water pollution, water pollution is overwhelmingly now in the United States and in North America created by not industries, uh, typical industries, manufacturing industries, but by agriculture. And if, in fact, agriculture is exempt from regulation, then we're going to continue down a path of further environmental degradation. Absolutely. Let me take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Mr. William Stowe. He is CEO and General Manager of the Des Moines Waterworks. Well, I want to talk a little bit about what you are monitoring. I know you're looking at nitrates, and it's my understanding that you remove nitrates from your water source at an extraordinary rate and at taxpayer expense. I'm also curious as to whether or not you test water for atrazine, glyphosate, and other agricultural chemicals that are used largely on corn and soy. Yeah, great questions, Melinda. At the end of the day, our system of water treatment isn't terribly concerned about pesticide, herbicide kinds of issues any more than we are microbiological issues or suspended soils erosion. In our area of the Midwest, the water is more like cappuccino 
in rivers and streams and then tap water. It's full of all kinds of suspended material. Our system of a water treatment called lime softening is very effective at dealing with all of that pretty effectively. What we're not good at dealing with, what our lime softening system is not uh, effective at dealing with, are dealing with over-nutrification, too many fertilizers like phosphorus and nitrogen in waters. And then the outgrowth of those algal blooms are continue to be a big concern for us as they are for people on the Great Lakes because some blue-green algal blooms, so-called HABs, harmful algal blooms, create a type of bacteria and a type of toxin that's very difficult to manage. We're seeing more and more of that in the upper Midwest, and it's a so-called unregulated contaminant. So we know there's great risk there, but there's not a lot of hard science on what safe levels are and then how to treat it. But we are very effective as a water treatment facility in being able to remove a number of things that you think of in industrial agriculture like herbicides and pesticides, glyphosate, atrazine, whatever it may be. Our our treatment process does a very good good job of removing that and making it safe for you as a water consumer. It obviously has a severe impact on recreational water use. Industrial agriculture and recreational water use do not go together very well. You're not going to see very many kayakers or swimmers in our rivers, lakes, and streams in the upper Midwest. If you go further to our north or closer to Canada and Wisconsin and Minnesota, they have far greater stewardship of their surface waters than we do. But our treatment processes do a pretty good job of removing most contaminants where it becomes difficult for us is where we get into over-nutrification, too many fertilizers, the molecular concerns associated with that kind of chemistry, as well as then the plant growth that it triggers. And when we're talking about phytoplankton and algae, we're essentially talking about too many fertilizers. It's uh, now causing plant growth that's a little different. It's not corn or soybeans or cane or whatever it may be, hay, they're microorganisms that can create significant toxins. And that's what we're seeing in the Great Lakes with harmful algae blooms. And we're seeing now more and more in Florida, as an example, and throughout the upper Midwest. Yeah, I was listening to one of our former representatives here in the state of Missouri, where I live. And he said, so many people, when you hear the word regulations, like we need regulations to protect our most valuable natural resources, and people bristle at the word regulation, he said, that's okay. Don't call them regulations. Call them protections. And if only we saw water regulations as being something that we would all want to get our arms around because this is a good thing, perhaps we would see a change in the quality of the water. How do you see us moving towards a safer farming or agricultural operation that protect our natural resources? What can we do? Well, really a great framing of the issue on a lot of levels. First, we as water providers, as your local water utility throughout the United States and Canada, are really a public health provider. We're not providing sweatshirts or CDs or something that you, cotton candy, something you can decide that are really 
largely unnecessary. They're a great luxury, but drinkable water is obviously a foundational element for survival. Mm-hmm. The only thing that I can think of that's more important is oxygen. Exactly. Obviously, clean air and clean water are absolutely fundamental. So we believe that the public health aspects of whether it's safe drinking water or safe pharmaceuticals or safe food at the market and whether we call it regulation or whether we call it protection, there are certain things that are worth regulating or protecting, particularly when they involve public safety and public health. I'm really glad that air traffic control and pharmacies are regulated or protected, however we want to phrase it, because that that implicates our individual health and safety. We believe that we're in the same category as that because whether we're talking about Flint, Michigan or Toledo, Ohio or Milwaukee, Wisconsin now 20 years ago when public water systems wobble and begin to deliver unsafe results, there's a significant public health manifestation from that. We think that each of us as water consumers, whether we're agricultural producers or whether we're urban or suburbanites, have an interest in safe, affordable, abundant drinking water. It's a basic human right. What we need to do a better job is to indicate it to producers, particularly industrial ag producers, that their activities are creating a direct public health risk for us. As the science gets better in terms of understanding public health risks, and frankly, as the science of production gets more complicated with genetics and with more complex fertilizers, herbicides, pesticides, neonics, number of different things that are used on the production side to improve production quantities, there's greater risk to us downstream. We need active science and we need active protection or regulation to be able to better protect you and I as water consumers. Fundamental to that, I think, is a strong US EPA, it's strong state environmental protection, and ultimately it's going to be a greater responsibility for producers to assume the costs of production really involve environmental consequences from their production and to take that in as part of the overall cost of food in their production model. Yes, I agree. You know, it's so interesting when it comes down to the policies that protect us and hold producers accountable. It seems to me that the policies have become more difficult to enact. So for example, in the state of Missouri, again, it's a personal example, so I'll use it, but we are losing legislatively the ability to have local health ordinances. And it it appears that having the local control, being able to have a public health ordinance that would limit the amount of polluting producers in a region that's becoming more difficult to control because of legislation that falls under these very happy names like, let's make our state agri-ready. And you've got these tremendous organizations with so much money, such as the Farm Bureau, to um, manipulate the kinds of policies that would ordinarily work to protect citizens. Absolutely. And and, and to give that context in my world... uh... Animal feeding operations are a significant concern to us. I live in a state that has 3 million people and at any one time has 22 million hogs. We're the number one 
a hog producer in the United States, I mean, that's a huge amount of hogs within a, a relatively medium-sized state. With 3 million people, we're very concerned about the environmental consequences of our waste stream as individuals. They have to go through a sewage treatment process and a process of discharge into the waters of the state of Iowa or the United States that indicates that there are safe limits of discharge. We have no such concern about the waste streams associated with 22 million hogs. And there is, uh, has been a historic concern in this state that local communities should be able to regulate new siting of animal feeding operations, of hog confinements as an example. Our state legislature some time ago now has kind of preempted that and say, this is a state issue, not a county issue or a local community issue. Right. That's a huge concern, obviously, continues to be a huge concern. The state of North Carolina, which is the number two hog producer in the United States after Iowa, had long ago learned that there's some saturation level, if you will, there's some crossing point between the number of animal units and how there is environmental adversity associated with that and has moratorium on construction of new animal facilities. That is something that, although there were bills that were introduced at the Iowa legislature, this session and previous sessions go nowhere, meaning there is this disregard for local rule, disregard for county concerns about public health issues, and a preemption then at the state level or sometimes, obviously, at the national level also. And in that scale, you're just inviting those who are very close to the industrial agricultural model and the benefits of the current model and the status quo to continue to monopolize the political process to the detriment of organics or CSAs or local food movements. Yeah, absolutely. We just have a few minutes left, and so I want to give you the opportunity to bring forth anything that you want our listeners to know about protecting water quality nationally. Great. And, you know, the first and foremost kind of advice that I would put out there or request would be for people to become involved in discussions with political leadership at all levels, whether it's in their county or their parish or their city or at the state legislative level or certainly at the national legislative level, talk with candidates about environmental protection and what they're going to do to better protect our soil, our air and our water. I'm obviously very much associated on the water side of that. But we as a, a country, I think, at a far lesser degree than our Canadian friends, as an example, are far less engaged in protecting our environment. We need to change that discussion. We need to talk about the downside of industrial agriculture, about factory farms, the misuse of public money, an industrial ag model now here that continues to put a huge emphasis on more production on producing on land that's more marginal and creating in that process more pollution, more difficulties for local communities and more difficulties for water systems and for air quality. So engaging electives and people who are trying to come into elective office in the need for environmental protection, environmental regulation, I think is going to be very important moving forward. And we also need to think about our sense of community. Uh, we have a tendency to think, you know, we live in a city or a county and that's our community, whether in the Mississippi River Valley or the Chesapeake Bay or Hudson Bay, doesn't make any difference. Um, there's a larger community, a larger environmental community that are interrelationships that have us hopefully taking some responsibility for not 
denigrating the environment, maybe not the environment that we immediately are going to face, but that others face around us because of our actions. Hmm. Well, Iowa citizens are certainly lucky to have you on board looking out for their water. I, I like to recommend that people first start out by knowing what watershed they live in and understanding Absolutely. what's contributing to the health or lack thereof of that body of water. So anyway, I must close. We're out of time, but I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Mr. William Stowe, who is the CEO and general manager of the Des Moines Waterworks. And please go to the website, which is simply www.dmww.org, and we will provide that link attached to this program. Mr. Stowe, thank you for your time and especially for your work in protecting our most valuable resource. Melinda, you're welcome. Thanks for having me on Food Sleuth Radio. Mm-hmm.